love them, help them walk closer to Jesus. If you have never done it before, don't worry, we will train you, we'll equip you, we'll give you everything you need to lead a small group. So man, go see the team in the foyer. We'd love to hook you up with an opportunity to do that. It'd be absolutely awesome. This is pre-conference Sunday, everybody. And if you're not excited, I don't know what's wrong with you, but conference kicks off Tuesday night. This week, tomorrow, we're packing this place in. We've got a whole bunch of people showing up to set up. And uh, we've been having an amazing time. We had Pastor uh, Paul Scanlon with us here in all our services this morning. Uh, this is service number four uh, happening today. And we are blessed to have Pastor Tim Alford here with us all the way from Elam, UK. Uh, he is the National Director of the, the National Youth Movement for Elam UK. They've got over 550 churches in the Elam UK movement. And he is the Director of the Youth Ministry. It's called Limitless Youth, doing a phenomenal, phenomenal job reaching young people, building an incredible culture in that, uh, in that nation of the UK. It's just un- unbelievable. So we're blessed to have him. He preached for us this morning in our Papakura campus. And, and I heard it was amazing. But I'll tell you what, the best is yet to come. We're here at Botany at 5 p.m. and we are blessed. Elam Christian Centre Botany, get to your feet. We're going to welcome to the platform, Pastor Tim Alford. Come on. Wow, good evening, everybody. What a joy it is to, to be with you. I tell you what, that is some flight from the UK. That is a long way. Uh, really, really blessed, really privileged to be here with you. Uh, thank you guys so much for the invitation. Uh, really, real, really is a joy to be here. And I've been enjoying some authentic Kiwi hospitality since I've been here the last couple of days. I've been made to feel very, very welcome indeed. But I thought that I'd uh, start the message this evening uh, by letting you know some things about the UK, all right, that you may not know. A little bit of a British education for you this evening. There's a consultancy research firm, they're called Search laboratory. And they set out to, to do a little bit of, of research about the UK. And, and they, they set out to find out what are the most important questions or the most common questions that continental Europeans have about the countries in the UK. What are their most important questions? What are their, their most regularly asked questions in Google, right? So, so this is what, this is, these are some of the uh, top answers that came out. Now, some of them, some of them were pretty reasonable. Like, for example, the Swedes in Sweden, their most common question about countries in the UK was, why has England got two flags? Reasonable question, I'm sure you'll agree. The the Danish, they wanted to know, why do English judges wear wigs? I think that's a fairly reasonable question. I don't know the answer to that, so I could put that into Google. Others, though, others, not so reasonable. Like, for example, uh, the uh, Italians, whose most common question to Google about countries in the UK was, why are the British dirty? (laughs) Doesn't get any better. The Dutch wanted to know, why are the British so ugly? Yeah. The Germans wanted to know, why are the British stupid? And my favourite of all, from the Portuguese, why are the English crybabies? That's what they wanted to know. So what you've learned today is that we Brits are highly esteemed by our European brothers and sisters. That's what you've learned. So I wanted to start by asking you a question, and it's this. What is the most important question that you have ever been asked? The most important question. Why don't you take a moment, cast your mind back over the days of your lives, and and, and ask yourself, what, what have been those questions that have been like forks in the road of your life? Maybe, do you want the job? Maybe, 
have you considered retraining? Will you go out with me? Will you marry me? Or maybe when Netflix asked you, are you still watching? I don't know. What have been, <laughs> what have been some of the most important questions? I guess it's true to say, isn't it, that some questions have the power to change the course of our entire lives, don't they? Who we spend them with, what we do with our days, where we live, and how we spend our time. These are powerful questions. But what if I told you this evening that there is a question that every single one of us must find an answer to that is more important than any other question that you will ever ask? What if I told you that there is a question that is so important that it will not only impact your present, but also your future and even your past? And what if I told you that the answer that you give to this question will have a more life-defining, destiny-altering impact on your life than any other answer you would ever give? Would you like to know what that question is this evening? I'm sure you would, let me tell you. Uh, Picture the scene, if you will. Jesus, he's a couple of days walk away from the areas in which he usually hung out in a place called Caesarea Philippi. And it was there that he asked the most important question ever. But before he did, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Jesus, they think you're a troublemaker. They think that you're like one of those prophets who used to stir up trouble and cause dissent amongst rulers. That's that's what they're saying about you, Jesus. And then Jesus asked it, the most important question ever. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? And there it is. Who do you say I am? The most important question ever. Here's why this is the most important question ever. You see, if Jesus really was who he said he was, then the answer that we give to this question will impact everything that we do. It will change how we manage our money. It will transform how we treat our parents or our children. It will change how we love our spouse. It will impact how we apply ourselves in our schools, universities, and workplaces. It will change how we treat our bodies how we impact the environment around us, how we prioritize our time, the things that we believe to be of value and the things that are not. The answer to to this question will change the very foundation upon which we build our personal identity and everything will look different. But even more than this, the answer that you give to this question will not only impact your present reality, it will alter your eternal destiny. And because the answer you give to this question is that important, because it will change your present reality and alter your eternal destiny, it is for that reason the most important question ever. Because you see, Jesus, he said this of himself. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. He said, I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. The answer you give to this question will change your present reality and alter your eternal destiny. It's the most important question ever. And because it's the most important question ever, we're going to give it some robust thought together this evening. Is that okay? And we're going to do that by examining the evidence. Now, before we can answer this question, I think we need to take a little step back from there. And I think we need to ask a preliminary question if we're really going to give a robust answer to this question. And the preliminary question we need to ask is this. Did Jesus even exist? 
Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, Tim, I can clearly see you're suffering from a little bit of the jet lag because you've got yourself all mixed up. Because you see, this is a church, and of course we believe that Jesus exists. But I I think I've got a couple of things to say about that. First is, I know that this is a church that is anticipating people who don't don't believe in Jesus to be among us every single week and to be welcome with us and to feel that this is a place where you can come and you can ask difficult questions and explore life and explore faith. And I'm going to say that if you're here today and you don't know Jesus yet, I know I can say it even though we've just met on behalf of the team. You are so welcome. We're so pleased you're here. And come with your questions because this is a place you can ask them honestly and you can be who you are. And the second thing I'd say to those of you who are followers of Jesus and you have settled the answer to this question in your minds is this, that I have a Bible that says, always be prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks you for what? The reason for the hope that you have. You know, there was a survey conducted just recently by Comres, and they found out that 39% of people today believe that Jesus was a mythical figure rather than somebody who actually existed in history. And this was particularly the case for people under the age of 35 who were 25% more likely to believe that Jesus didn't actually exist in history than those aged 35 and above. So this is a question that you are going to be presented with more and more commonly, so it's important that you are equipped with a reason for the hope that you have. So which is it? Is Jesus, is he a real historical figure or is he more of a a mythical character, a King Arthur or a Robin Hood kind of guy? Well, what does the evidence say? Now, to grapple with this, I'm about to to break all rules of communication, right? Uh, Because I'm going to be really honest with you and I'm going to tell you something a communicator should never say and it's this, the next bit's a bit boring. Okay, the next bit's a bit boring. But... Stay with me, stay with me, because I promise the payoff will be worth it. Okay, here's the boring bit. This is what we need to understand if we're going to grapple with this question accurately. Now, the historical reliability of any ancient document, any ancient document that we rely upon for understanding our own human history is determined by two things. Number one, the number of ancient manuscript copies that recorded that event that are still in existence today, and number two, the amount of time that has elapsed between the copies that we have in existence today and when those documents were originally written. That is how any ancient document's reliability is understood by historians today. So, for example, there are less than 10 copies of the Greek philosopher Plato. The oldest of these copies dates about 1,200 years after it was originally written. Caesar has 10 copies, the Roman historian Tacitus 20, and then there's a big jump for Homer's Iliad, which has a massive 643 ancient manuscript copies. Now, what I want you to understand is this, that with that number of ancient copies, still in existence today, and with that amount of time elapsed between when they were originally written and the copies we have today, all of those documents are considered reliable sources by historians by which we have shaped and understood what happened in the past. Boring bit over, are you still with me? Okay, here's the exciting bit. With that in mind, how many ancient manuscript copies do you think that we have of the documents that form our New Testament? Well, I'll tell you, we have 24,000. 24,000. And many of the oldest copies uh, are separated from the originals, not by 1,200 years like Plato, but by only 25 to 50 years, church. You can trust your Bible. 
I love, uh, I love what Sir Frederick Kenyon says. Sir Frederick Kenyon, he's the former director of the British Museum, and he says this, both the authenticity and general integrity of the books of the New Testament may be regarded as finally established. This is cool, isn't it? But even more than this, what we have is we have a number of non-Christian and even non-Jewish historians who also make record of Jesus' life. So this uh, attractive young man here is Flavius Josephus. He's a a Jewish historian, and in AD 93, he wrote a history of, of, of Judaism in which he made two references to the one he described as Jesus, the so-called Christ. About 20 years after Josephus, we have the Roman uh, historians, politicians, Pliny and Tacitus, uh, who held some of the highest offices of state in the Roman world. Now, what's interesting about these guys is that being Romans, who considered Caesar to be divine, both of them wrote negatively about Christians and about Christianity, but neither of them ever brought into question the existence of Jesus and indeed wrote about his life. See, the fact is, there was never any debate in the ancient world about whether Jesus of Nazareth was a real historical figure, and Jesus' death on the cross is undisputed among historians today. Roderick Dunkley, he writes this, In none of these various testimonies to the fact of Christ is there any slightest hint or idea that he was not a real historical person. This is cool, isn't it? This is good stuff. You've got a robust faith. I want you to know that tonight. But having said that, did Jesus exist isn't the most important question ever. We just had to establish that fact before we could ask the most important question ever, which is, who do you say I am? If the historical evidence leaves us in little doubt that Jesus was a real man who lived and breathed and taught in first century Judea, then who was he? Who was this man? Who is Jesus? Because if you were to go out into your community and ask a Muslim today, they would tell you that Jesus was a prophet. If you were to ask a Hindu, they would tell you that he was one among many holy men. Ask a Buddhist, and they would say he was a good man. Ask a historian, they would tell you he was a Jewish rabbi or a teacher. The problem is, though, I'm not sure that an accurate historical study of the life and the teachings of Jesus can allow us to draw any of these conclusions about who Jesus was. Some of you will be familiar with C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis is going to help us here. He's an Englishman, uh, was. He, he was a, a professor at uh, Oxford University, perhaps known most famously as the author of the Chronicles of Narnia. And C.S. Lewis points this out uh, when he writes this. He says, a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would be either a lunatic on the level of a man who claimed to be a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up as a fool. You can spit at him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any of this patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He's not left that option open to us. He did not intend to. See, C.S. Lewis, he's just following the logic here. And he's making the point that that Jesus could not have been both good and moral and just a man because somebody who was good and moral would not attempt to lead so many people astray 
with claims of being God. So if Jesus was not God, the only options we have left to us, C.S. Lewis says, is that either he was mad or he was bad. So which is it then? Let's, let's take them one at a time. Was he mad? In other words, did Jesus genuinely believe that the things he was saying about himself were true, but they weren't true, so he was, you know, he was a few sandwiches short of a picnic, so to speak. Well, uh, I don't know, what do you think? Do you, do you think that Jesus led the life of a lunatic? Does a madman teach with such clarity? Could somebody who didn't have control of their own mind speak in such a way that their teachings would form the foundations of our laws for hundreds of years? Would thousands flock to hear a man-man speak and, and billions still follow in his teachings thousands of years after his death? Could we really conclude that Jesus was mad? Okay, okay, so if he wasn't mad, then, then maybe he was bad. In other words, Jesus knew all along that the things he was saying about himself weren't true, but he said it anyway because he wanted to gather followers and grow in power and fame and notoriety. So he was lying, he was deceiving people, he was leading people astray, he was bad. Well, again, what, what, what do you think? Could we genuinely say that Jesus lived the life of a, of a bad man? Would a bad man spend his time with a social outcast that everybody else was ashamed to associate with? Would, would a bad man cherish and love and speak value into the lives of, of those that everybody else ignored? Would a bad man have rescued the woman from being, uh, who was caught in adultery from being stoned to death, even though that was what the law demanded in that time should have happened? The non-Christian Jewish historian who we mentioned earlier, Josephus, he he wrote this about Jesus. He says, at this time there was a wise man who was called Jesus and his conduct was good and he was known to be virtuous. Does this sound like the legacy of, of a bad man? So you see, if you follow the evidence, Jesus could not have been just a good moral teacher. That doesn't make sense. He's not left that option open to us, as C.S. Lewis said. And there was a music journalist called Micah Esaias who was interviewing Bono. And this music journalist asked this question. He said that Christ has his rank amongst the world's great thinkers, but the Son of God, isn't that a bit far-fetched? And Bono replied in this way. Bono said this, no, it's not far-fetched to me. Look, the secular response to the Christ story always goes like this. He was a great prophet, obviously a very interesting guy. He had a lot of things to say along the lines of the other great prophets, be they Elijah, Muhammad, Buddha, or Confucius. But actually, Christ doesn't allow you that. He doesn't let you off that hook. Christ says, no, I'm not saying I'm a prophet. I'm saying I'm the Messiah. I'm saying I am God incarnate. And people say, no, 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 please just be a prophet, a prophet we can take. You know, you're a bit eccentric. We've had John the Baptist eating locusts and wild honey, and we can handle that. But don't mention the M word, because you know we'd have to crucify you. And he goes, no, no, I know you're expecting me to come back with an army and set you free from these creeps, but I actually am the Messiah. At this point, everyone starts staring at their shoes and says, oh, my God, he's going to keep saying this. So what you're left with, says Bono, is that either Christ was who he said he was, the Messiah, or a complete nutcase. I mean, we're talking a nutcase on the level of Charles Manson. I'm not joking here. And then Bono says these words. The idea that the entire course of civilization for over half the globe could have its fate changed and turned upside down by a nutcase 
To me, that's far-fetched. That's far-fetched. This is how Bono answers the most important question ever. But what about you? Who do you say he was? Mad? Bad? Or God? And surely, our answer to this question all hinges on one defining factor. And it's not whether Jesus lived and died, because we know that to be true, but whether Jesus died and lived. The Apostle Paul said it like this. He said, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. If Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. In other words, bad news, guys. If Jesus was not raised from the dead, we're all wasting our time being here this evening. But if he was, if he was, then surely everything that he claimed about himself was proved to be true in that moment. And we have no other option than to fall at his feet and call him Lord and God and order our whole lives around his lordship. So was he? Did he? Did Jesus rise from the dead? One more time. Let's consider the evidence. What do we know to be true? What do we know to be historically and verifiably true? Well, there's three things I'm going to share with you. And the first is this, that Jesus' tomb was empty. Jesus' tomb was actually found empty. How do we know this to be true? We know this for a couple of reasons. The first is something that historians call the criterion of embarrassment. Okay, The criterion of embarrassment. I wonder if you could help me out, turn to the person next to you and say, the criterion of embarrassment. I just wanted you to know how it feels to be embarrassed. That's all I was doing there. The criterion of embarrassment. What is the criterion of embarrassment? Well, I should explain it to you. This is where, in the study of history, an event is more likely to be considered as true if it was embarrassing or inconvenient to the people who were recording that event. So, in the case of the resurrection of Jesus and the story of the empty tomb, if if this was a, a made-up story, something that the disciples had, had, had decided just to, 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 to create an invent, there is no way they would have made Mary Magdalene and the companions the first witnesses to the empty tomb. Why? Because in the ancient world, the testimony of a woman was considered invalid, would not have held up in a court of law, and wouldn't have been trusted by the people who were hearing it. So if the story was manufactured, they would have made Simon Peter and his friends the first witnesses to the empty tomb, because that would have made the story much more reliable. This is, the, this is the criterion of embarrassment. And secondly, we know that there was an empty tomb. Uh, and this is, uh, I'm going to show you this one on a map because I don't want you to miss it, okay? Here is where Jesus was crucified and was buried. Wait for it. Also here is where they started to claim that Jesus had been risen from the dead. Now, church, you tell me, how long is that lie going to last? See, the people in charge in Jerusalem, don't forget, were viciously opposed to Christianity and anybody making claims about Jesus having risen from the dead. And they could have squashed the whole thing before it started simply by producing a body, but they couldn't because the tomb was empty. Okay, okay, I hear what you're saying, Tim, but maybe the body was stolen. Maybe that's why it was empty. Okay, I hear you, but think about that. Why would the Romans or, or the Jews have stolen the body? They, they, want, they wanted to crush Christianity. They wanted to press it down. They wanted to stop it from expanding, not, not uh, propel it by giving it stories of an empty tomb. 
And what about the disciples, the followers of Jesus? Maybe they did it. Well, they would have had no motive either. Don't forget that these guys were, were beaten and persecuted and tortured for their claims about the resurrection. Why would they go through all that for a deliberate lie? It doesn't make any sense. We know that the tomb was empty, and this is why the stolen body theory has been considered invalid for almost 100 years. William Lane Craig says this, there is simply no plausible natural explanation today for the account of Jesus' tomb being empty. If we deny the resurrection of Jesus, we're left with an inexplicable mystery. We know that the tomb was empty. We also know, to be historically and verifiably true, that there were resurrection appearances, post-resurrection appearances of Jesus to his followers. How do we know this? In his letter to the church in Corinth, Paul wrote these words. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve, and after that, don't miss it, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time. Now, this is an important point because Paul, in a time where there were eyewitnesses who could have easily disproved his claim in this moment, is, is wanting you to know, is laying it out on the table that Jesus appeared to 500 people at the same time, which is an important point because he wants you to know that this was no mere hallucination by grieving followers of Jesus because 500 people cannot have the same hallucination at the same time. He goes on to say, most of these people are still living. Go ask them, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and then to all of the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me. In other words, Paul is saying, guys, if you don't believe me, there's 500 and some other people you can go ask about it. No, no, you're thinking, you're thinking, Tim, but you can't prove the Bible with the Bible. And this is where we get a little bit confused with the Bible. Because you see, when I say the Bible, what, you think, what you're thinking about is you're thinking about a religious text. But what you need to understand that when Paul was writing these words, he wasn't writing the Bible, or at least he didn't know he was writing the Bible. He was simply writing a letter. A letter from a guy called Paul to a group of believers who met like a church in this one in a place called Corinth, which is particularly notable because it was written only 20 to 25 years after the crucifixion of Jesus. In other words, church, this is what historians call a primary source. A primary source. And this is why the non-Christian non uh, New Testament scholar Gerd Ludemann writes these words. It may be taken as historically certain that Peter and the disciples had experiences after Jesus' death in which Jesus appeared to them as the risen Christ. Well, it's historically certain that Peter and the guys, they claimed to have these experiences, these post-resurrection encounters with Jesus, but perhaps they were lying. Perhaps it was like this huge conspiracy theory that they'd all made up. Well, let's think about that for a moment, shall we? These very same disciples would continue to claim that Jesus had been risen from the dead until their dying breath and die for that claim, they would. James, executed by the sword. Thomas and Matthew were speared to death. Philip and Bartholomew were tortured and crucified. Andrew was crucified. James was crucified. Thaddeus crucified. Simon Peter crucified. Why would they all, to a man, have continued to confess that Jesus had been risen from the dead if they'd made it all up? It makes no sense at all. Maybe one of them, but all of them, no chance. 
I love how Charles Colson puts this. He's a, a former American politician. He was imprisoned for his part in the Watergate scandal and then later became a Christian. And he explains this so well. He says it like this. I know that the resurrection is a fact and Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified that they'd seen Jesus risen from the dead. They then proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned and put in prison and they would not have endured that if it wasn't true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world and they couldn't keep a lie for three weeks. You're telling me that 12 apostles could keep a lie for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. And finally, finally, we know, and this one's really significant, about the growth of the church, the growth of the early church. Let me introduce you, if I can, to uh, Alvaro Theus. Here he is, Alvaro Theus. Now, Alvaro Theus, uh, he thinks he's Jesus. <laughs> he lives in, a, in Brazil in a compound surrounded by barbed wire that he's called the New Jerusalem. Now, you've never heard of Alvaro Theus, and there's a reason that you've never heard of Alvaro Theus. He's not Jesus. He's not the Messiah. He's not the Son of God. Follow my logic. If you've ever watched Monty Python's The Life of Brian, not you, I mean the more sinful person sitting next to you, of course, then you might recognize Brian, who you will know is not the Messiah. He's a very naughty boy. <laughs> He's a very naughty boy. Now, uh, whilst uh, this uh, film can hardly be called historically accurate, uh, there is one thing that this movie did get right, and it's this, that people in first century Judea who were walking around claiming to be the Messiah were a dime a dozen. They were everywhere. And some of them, like Jesus, preached. And some of them, like Jesus, gathered followers. And you know what happened when they did that? The same thing that happened to Jesus. They were imprisoned and they were executed by the Romans. Now there's a reason that you've never heard of these other so-called messiahs. And it's this, that when they were killed by the Romans, they stayed dead. And so their followers very quickly realized that the, the person who they put their hope in was in fact not the Messiah. And they went home and had dinner until they found another one. But after Jesus was crucified, the church grew rapidly. Spreading to Jerusalem and into Judea and into Samaria and to the very ends of the earth. And all in spite of tremendous opposition and persecution. And still today, thousands of years later, billions of people in every continent of the globe claim to have a personal relationship with this same Jesus. And the only transformative event that can explain all of this is that Jesus was risen from the dead. That He is the resurrection and the life. That He is the way and the truth and the life. And that nobody comes to the Father except through Him. If you believe it, say Amen. So, I'm finishing. Jesus, he's in Caesarea Philippi with his guys and he asks them the most important question ever. Who do you say I am? And Simon Peter answers, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Who do you say Jesus is? the most important question ever.
Because how you answer it will not only transform your present reality, it will alter your eternal destiny. We've heard about how C.S. Lewis answered it. We've heard about how Bono answered it. We know how Simon Peter answered it. I know how I answer it. But who do you say that he is? The most important question ever. And I can't preach a message like this one without giving you the opportunity to respond to it. And if there's anybody here and maybe you've been coming to church for a long time, maybe you've been coming because like your parents always made you. Maybe you've been coming for a while because you've had questions and, and maybe some of, some of these things were things that you've been wrestling with and, and something's just clicked in your heart today. Or maybe you're here for the very first time today. This wasn't even in your radar until this evening, but you've been on God's radar. Whatever it is for you, I'd like to give you the opportunity to respond. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say a prayer, and it's going to be a prayer of commitment to Jesus. And if you've never prayed that prayer before, and you would like to, I'd like for you to just repeat that prayer, not out loud and not to me, in your heart to God. And as you do that, we'll pray. And then Bex, Pastor Bex will come and she, she's going to uh, explain about a little connect card that we're going to give you and help to stay in touch with the church and all of that kind of stuff, which is all good. But this is about you getting in touch with Jesus. So why don't you pray with me? Say, Jesus, thank you that you died so that I could live. Thank you that you rose so that I could be free. Today I want to choose to follow you. I'm sorry for all the stuff in my past, maybe even in my present, that doesn't please you. But I thank you that today I can be forgiven. I can be free. Help me to follow you all of my life. Help me to follow you when I have questions. Help me to follow you when I find the answers. Jesus, we thank you that you do not call us to a blind faith. That you're real, that you're alive, that we do not serve a dead Messiah. And together we say, we believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. If you believe that with me, say amen. Amen. Well, guys, thank you so much for having me. Hey, if you prayed that prayer, uh, as uh, oh, Pastor Bex is here, why don't you just give us a little wave if you prayed that prayer so our team can pass the Connect card to you. Give us a little wave if that's you. Fantastic. Brilliant. Amazing. So good. Pastor Bex. Awesome. Come on, church. Let's celebrate. Celebrate every life changed and transformed and turned around for God. 
Well, if you did pray that prayer along with Pastor Tim, we would love to be able to help you along your journey. On your seat, there is a Connect card. It may have fallen underneath your seat or maybe sitting under your bottom right now. I want you to grab that out right now just as I'm speaking. And we just wanna be able to help you do one more thing. We wanna help you be able to take a step of faith today. We're not gonna call you out. We're not gonna call you to the front. We're not gonna embarrass you. Don't worry about that. We just wanna be able to connect with you and help you on your journey. On that card, there is a place for you to write your name and a contact, uh, a way for us to contact you. And then you'll see on that, on that card there, the second box down says, I'm committing or recommitting my life to Christ. We would love for you to tick that box. If you lifted your hand, maybe you didn't, uh, but you really wish you had. You can tick that box in just a few moments time. Some buckets are gonna go around. You can pop that in the bucket and one of our team will be able to get in touch with you this week. We are so excited for the decision that you have made and we just really believe in that God is gonna bless your life just abundantly as you commit to Him. We're so um, so pumped for you. We believe that's the best decision that you could make today. There are a couple of other things on that Connect card that will help you as well. Uh, it, we are kicking off a new growth track um, um, next week, Growth Track starts off next week. It's a four-week course. It happens every single month, starting with the first Sunday of every month. We do it during our 10 a.m. service and our, we do it 4 p.m., so just before this service. It's a four-week course where you get to discover who you are, who God's created you to be. We believe that every single person has been given a gift on their life and uh, we believe that you will not feel fulfilled in your life until you discover what it is and you begin using it to serve others. So we wanna help you do that at Growth Growth Track. There are free donuts at Growth Track. So I feel like if for no other reason, then you need to get your weekly donut for the next four weeks, starting next Sunday at Growth Track. So uh, you can just tick a box on the card again. It says, I wanna go to Growth Track. So tick that box, pop it in the bucket as it goes around. The 